think the reality is, is that we give lip service that we want to see God. We give lip service that we want to be more like Jesus. But when the push comes to shove, perhaps we're not willing or ready to lead the way that Christ is leading us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the, for the ability to be here this morning. We want to give you thanks for the passion that you put into, into these men who are putting themselves out there for you to be able to give us a deeper sense of your message. And so, Father, we pray now that as we open up your word, that you would give us an even deeper insight into what you want us to know. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we continue our series in the sins of our fathers, we are one week away from Easter weekend, the weekend where we remember the power of God and the fact that he gives life to his son. Not just regular life, but he resurrects him after being dead. And it is that moment, that event in human history that changes everything forever. But as we've been journeying toward the cross, as we have been journeying for the last five and a half or six weeks, we've been looking at some of the heroes in the Bible and looking at how their stories are so much our stories. We are looking at how these people who made it into Hebrews 11, the Hall of, Fa- the Hall of Fame of Faith, weren't actually perfect. We've been looking at how though they failed and though they sinned, God still saw them as faithful. Noah stumbled. Abraham goes astray more than once. Isaac and Rebekah show favoritism to their kids. Jacob's is positively obnoxious. And the author of Genesis doesn't disguise his disapproval of such conduct. Yet despite all of their sinfulness, God still chooses to preserve them. God's saving purpose isn't thwarted by human weakness, though it may be delayed. God chooses the patriarchs not because they are particularly lovable characters, but because God has declared his intention that he has chosen this people and they would be a blessing to every tribe on the earth. But as with every family, every family has its complicated histories, right? All you have to do is show up to Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner. Every one of our families has its complicated histories. In some ways, we're all dysfunctional at our very best. Yet we keep coming home to these families. This morning, I want to look at one family and just kind of take you through a couple of these events and then get to the point and the application at the end. So, there was a prophecy in the book of Genesis. Now, I'm not going to have us read this because we'd be reading for the entire half hour and I wouldn't have a chance to kind of get us some points across. So, there was a man named Isaac who married a woman named Rebecca, And they were about 40 years old. And God made her, or he made her pregnant, right? God provided children for her. And one of the things we find in the Bible is that Rebecca cries out and says, why are these, why is this baby, why are these, you know, she didn't know there would be two people or twins, and she's like, why is this pregnancy so bad? I wish I wasn't pregnant. I wish I didn't have kids. This is so bad. And so the prophecy is that she would have two sons, but that they would be at war with each other. 
The two sons that she would ultimately give birth to are Esau, the one who came out first, and Jacob came out second. Esau was a hunter, a woolly of a man. He was um, hairy, the Bible tells us. Not really sure how to describe it other than he was filled with hair all over. And he was redheaded, right? But the Bible writers are saying this guy was a hunter. He was like, you know, he was the kind of guy that was like big and buff and probably all the girls liked, okay? So that was Esau. And then Jacob, the brother, was the quiet one, right? He stayed, he was like, he, he's like, what does the Bible say? He was the one that lived in tents. So he was more of a homebody, more of a sensitive, more of a, you know, how are you feeling today kind of guy. So there's these two brothers. Esau, the first one, would, in, in, the, in those times, in the ancient times, Esau would have the birthright, which means that when his father passed away, he would get a double portion of the inheritance. He would always be first. He always, in a sense, had the best seat at the table. The firstborn son in those times was always considered the better or the best. But the prophecy says that Esau and Jacob would be at war with each other. So when they were born, Esau comes out first, and some of you may know the story, Jacob comes out second, but what does the Bible tell us? He was grabbing on to Esau's heel. Another, like, that's, you don't want to see that if you're a parent. You don't want to see your children fighting. But the Bible tells us that they would be at war with each other. Then there comes a story. Remember, Esau was the hunter, the rugged, you know, buff man, the athlete, the jock, the guy all the girls liked. He was that guy. But it turns out he wasn't very bright. So one day he goes out, he's hunting all day, Maybe he's gone for a couple of days. Maybe he's gone for even a week. He comes home to his brother, who likes to be at home, the more sensitive one. The commentaries say all kinds of funny things about him. But he comes back, and he's making, he's, he's making a lentil stew. He's cooking, right? His brother is out hunting real animals, using bows and arrows and spears, and using all of his muscles and all of his physical prowess, while his brother, meanwhile, is at home cooking. So he comes home, Esau, and he says, Jacob, I will, I will trade my birthright, that double portion of my inheritance, that extra blessing that dad will give us when he dies. I will sell that to you, if, or I'll trade it to you, if only you give me a bowl of that red lentil stew, because I am so hungry. Which makes you wonder how good of a hunter he was if he was hungry, if he'd been out hunting. But the Bible doesn't tell us about that. So the story tells us that Jacob had already been cooking. He already knew his brother was probably coming home. And he gladly trades with him. He says, fine, you will give me your birthright, and I will give you a bowl of soup. You know, what's interesting about this is that the Bible commentators will write that Esau was so willing to trade something so important for something that was immediate. Because he had to wait years and years and years. Remember back then, for some reason, these Bible characters lived forever. I mean, they lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. So Esau was like, you know, by then I'll, I'll have my own retirement. I'll have my own animals. I'll have my own farms. I'll have everything I need. I won't need dad's blessing necessarily, you know, years from now. So he trades something that he sees won't be happening for a long time for something that was immediate. And what the Bible commentators say is that sometimes the things that are immediate aren't always the best. 
But the story continues. There is this war and there is this battle between these two brothers. And they never seem, at least in the beginning, to figure things out. And this is where we start the story for this morning. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. Oh, right. So then, sorry, I can't believe I missed the most important part of the story. Sorry about that. Some of you already are like, duh, pastor, I could do your job better. So here's the story. <laughs> Can we get the skit guys back up now? <laughs> so then, the, the, the kind of culminating part of this story is that um, Jacob is finally going to, I'm um, sorry, Isaac, their father, is finally going to pass away. And so Isaac's wife, Rebecca, says to Jacob, she says, look, your brother is gone because your dad sent him out to go and hunt so that he could bring him that wonderful meal that he likes because your father is going to bless Esau, which was the right way to do things, right? So he would still get the blessing, but it was a different blessing, even though he traded his birthright in. All right, so it's two different kinds. Can't get into the whole history and ancient Near East kind of thing of things. But needless to say, she says, so Jacob, go, just get something from the pen outside. I'll cook it for him just the way he likes it, and then go and put on all kinds of animal hair on you, because your dad, he can't see anyway, right? So just, he'll, you'll go in there, you'll make your voice sound like Esau, and you're going to basically trick your dad, because Jacob was the mom's favorite, Esau was the dad's favorite. And so she said, basically, you're just going to trick your dad, so that he will bless you. And once he blesses you, like, it's sealed in stone. It can't be reversed. It can't be changed. So what, that's what happens in the story. Jacob comes into his father Isaac. His father Isaac is on his deathbed. He's, in a sense, dying. And so he can't really see. So he comes up to him, and he says, Father, here's the thing that you really like. And so he prepares it for him, and he puts it before him. And the dad's like, are you really Esau? And he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, he probably changes his voice. Yeah, I'm Esau. He feels him. He's like, okay, he's hairy. He feels like Esau. So he blesses him. The story then cuts to Esau coming back and saying, like, what, what happened? Why did you do, like, you know, woe is me, right? And so Esau then says, as soon as dad is dead, I am going to kill my brother Jacob. That's like the, the kind of that part, climax of their, of their battle and of their war. So Jacob does what any of us would do, because remember, Jacob didn't have the muscles, Jacob didn't have the hunting powers, Jacob was the quiet one, and so, like any of us would do, he went on the run. And this is where we start the story. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reaching to the heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. By the way, this is the third time that the phrase, this place, is used. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. 
He called that place Bethel, but the name of that city was Luz. Luz. And then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, if he will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give one-tenth to you. Here's the first question that comes to my mind. Jacob clearly lied. First of all, he, he, he did an unfair trade with his brother, the birthright for the lentil soup. He was cunning. He knew what he was doing. Second, he tricks his dad into giving him the birthright that his brother actually deserved, or the blessing. And then he goes on the run. Does that sound like a stand-up guy? No. And yet, for some reason, God still shows up to him and vows to protect him no matter what happens. Not only does God promise that he will protect them, but God says, I will be with you and I will be with you every step of the way until you have accomplished what I have called you to accomplish. Because you see, when God chooses someone to do a sacred task, God will follow through with that person until the task is completed. And now the Bible doesn't say that he pulls away, but it's the fact that when God calls you, he will help you. Regardless of how good or how bad you are, regardless of the things you've done in your past or the things you are doing currently, if God calls you, he will be with you. You see, the last six weeks, we've been talking about how the gospel, how God's grace, how God's forgiveness has been present from the very beginning in the, in the book of Genesis, and it continues to be present until the last book of the Bible. The gospel doesn't just show up when Jesus shows up midway through the story, but the gospel in God's grace and God's mercy has been present for everyone at all times from beginning until the very end. So when we get to this story of Jacob, it is a reminder that even on our worst days, God is still present with us. Because I believe that as the Israelites of the Old Testament, as the Bible teaches, that God has chosen this people to be a blessing and to be his message in a world that desperately needs it. So let me get into some specifics before we, before we even can close up. I have like... 10 hours worth of sermon on this one. When we look at this, this word, the place, if we're just reading right through it, if you're reading the Bible and you only have five minutes and you're trying to read as fast as you can, you may not pick up on this. But if the Bible repeats a word within a certain kind of pericope or segment of scripture, that means something. So here, this, this word, the place, usually, the, now the Bible says that he was out under the stars, there was nowhere for him to actually go into. Normally, in the ancient times, they were very hospitable, which means that he would have had no problem going into and just going to a neighbor's house on the way to where he's going and saying, hey, can you please just let me stay in, your, you know, in, your, in the stable in the back or on your couch or whatever homes looked like back then. That would have been normal. People, you, we would have been like, oh, sure, come in. Like, we wouldn't do that now. But back then, I guess it was a lot safer. And so he would have normally had somewhere to stay. 
But the Bible commentators will say that, he was, that perhaps the reason he didn't go into someone's home is because he was so ashamed of what he had done. The lies and the betrayal. He didn't want to be around people. So these are all just suggestions of perhaps why, because in that time it wouldn't have been a problem. The other part of it is perhaps God needed him to be outdoors so that he could give him a very realistic vision of what things would be like. The word, this, the place in ancient times, and the Hebrew word, the original Hebrew word, was also used in some instances as a place of worship. So in the Hebrew, when the writer, when Moses is writing this, he is allowing the people who are reading this to understand something special is about to happen here. And so we continue with the dream, and there's a dream, and there's a ladder, a ramp, an escalator, some sort of something that is reaching up into the heavens. And on it, he sees angels coming down and coming up. Now, some Bible translations will say that God was standing at the top of it. The one I have, I don't know why, but it says he was standing beside him. But the point is that this ladder was reaching into the heavens. Now, in the first century, they understood the world into three different tiers. So up is good, so that's where God is. The middle, where we are, is like land, so it's kind of neutral. And below us is, must be, if God is above, then below must be Satan and hell. That's kind of where we kind of get our, not our understanding, but kind of pop cultures. When we think of hell, we think it's below us. But the truth is, is if we go down far enough, what happens? We come out the other side of the earth. So there's a whole different realm in reality of how God actually works. But the idea behind this is that if this ladder reaches into heaven, this is now connecting heaven and earth. And God shows these angels coming and going because for them, angels were the ones that roamed the earth and protected all of God's people. And this was a reminder to Jacob that he would be protected by God wherever he went. And so this dream represents for Jacob the fact that God will be with him wherever he goes. And remember, verse 15 says this, Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. See, the truth is, is that when God calls us, when God has a plan for us, and I believe God has a plan for every one of you, He will not leave you. It may feel at times like God isn't there. It may feel at times because of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, in the pain and in the suffering, we look to God and say, why? But the Bible never tells us that God will stop the storm from happening. The Bible tells us that God will help us to find peace and comfort in the midst of the storm. So that can never be a reason for us to stop believing just because bad things happen. But when God calls you, he is asking you to trust him because he will protect you. So many of you have been through things, things in the church, things outside of the church, things in your family, and you just feel like, God, you're not protecting me. But sometimes, oftentimes I believe, it isn't that God isn't present, it's that we just don't know how to be aware of God's presence. Which is why I like that skit so much. I've seen a version of it many, many years ago. And it stays in my mind because it's a reminder is what would I act like if Jesus was present to me now? What would it be like? What would I do? What would I talk about? How awkward would it be? 
the story would continue. And I don't have it on the screen. Jacob wakes up from his dream, and this is what he says. Surely the Lord is in this place, but I didn't know it. The Bible tells us that the whole world is the Lord's. The Bible tells us that you move and breathe and have your being and you exist because God created you to exist. You see, this whole earth is God's earth. God isn't just present in this building. Let me go through this and we're going to close up in a moment or two. If God, now we, we call a church, what do we call it? What do we call a church? The house of God, right? Do you know what the Hebrew of house of God would be? Bethel. Jacob wakes up. He says, surely the Lord is in this place. He renames this place that was first called Luz, but now is Bethel. So Beth is house, El is God, house of God. Was there a church there? Was it a holy site? Was there a Bible study going on? Were they praying? No, you see, in the very beginning of Scripture, we are reminded that God is present everywhere all the time. We don't have to just come to church for God to be present here. Now, I'm not, okay, so some of you are thinking, like, so we don't have to come to church? That's not what I'm saying. Like, that, here's what I'm saying. We call this building a house of God. But we only come, like, three hours a week. Four if you come for Bible study in the, the middle of the week. So what, God hangs out by himself in this building? No, we say that this is the house of God, not because of how it's built, but because of what happens when we gather together. That's why we call this place the house of God. So whenever we gather together, God is present. Which means that if you are gathered together with your brothers and sisters, with friends at a lunch table, somewhere in Old Town Orange, or maybe even at your work. God is present there. Maybe you're in a car and you're with someone and you're cursing traffic because no one knows how to drive. God is there. You see, God is present everywhere. The problem isn't that God doesn't show up. The problem is that we are so focused on our own things, our own feelings, our own thoughts, that oftentimes, like the skit, we don't take time to be open to the presence of God. How many of you have ever responded this when people say, like, oh, how are you doing? And, and what is what I say this a lot, and I don't know why. I say, oh, I'm busy, busy all the time. But it is within that busyness sometimes that, the, that it's so easy to be distracted from what God is trying to do. The Bible would continue to tell us, and Jesus models, Jesus would take time in the morning to go off by himself, to pause from all of the busyness. Was Jesus a busy man? Yeah, he was like in demand. People were coming to him. Thousands of people were coming to him. Thousands of people were coming to him so that they could heal him, and yet Jesus made the time to go off by himself and be present to God in a special way. So as we close up this sermon, the reminder of Jacob's story that God was in this place, he renames it the house of God, the gate of where heaven is. It is a reminder for you 
that it is up to us to be more open and more aware to the presence of God. And we don't have time to get into this. This is like four sermons in one. But one of the the ways that we see Scripture teaching us to do this is to go off by yourself in solitude and silence. Turn the phone off. Sometimes some of you will try to call me at 7.50 in the morning. Well, my phone's on silent because I try the best I can. It's not every day. I'm no saint. But I try in the mornings the best that I can to try to follow the way of Jesus. Because if it was good enough for Jesus, then I should probably think about emulating that. So it's turn off your cell phones, turn off your radio, turn off your television, turn off your kids. No, you can't do that. Take them to school or wake up early. I think your wife would be okay if you told her, honey, I'm going to go and spend some time with Jesus right now. Unless it's in the middle of an argument, then I don't think you can do that. (laughs) Husbands, wives, wives, I'm sure your husband will be okay if you say he just needs some time to be with Jesus. Listen, I know how that sounds. Some of you are like, you're such a pastor telling us those things. Yeah, I'm supposed to believe in the ideal. I believe that a man who was dead was resurrected. And I believe that it is through the power of God and that resurrection that it gives you the power to live as conquerors in this world. And I believe in the ideal that your sins, even the darkest of your sins, are forgiven. So yes, if it sounds like, yeah, that's not the real world, yeah, that's not how the world is, but this is the way God chooses things to be. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that in Scripture we find stories that seem too impossible and too good to be true. We thank you because that helps us to believe. It helps us to have faith. And so, Father, in just a few moments as we celebrate baptism, the new life, the newness of life that Tracy will be encountering this afternoon. We pray, Father, that as you fill this place, that you would also fill our hearts, that we would be able to feel your presence in a powerful way. In the name of Jesus, amen.